Hey folks, this is Steve Vai, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks, so turn it up. Hey, what's up? This is Scott Ian from Anthrax, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey everyone, this is Kasim Sultan from Utopia and a ton of other projects, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Oh! episode 479 of the iron city rocks podcast i'm your host john coming to you from the iron city of pittsburgh pennsylvania bringing the best rock hard rock heavy metal and blues talk on the net episode 479 we are following a trend we started in episode 478 where we talked to dale bozio who had played with frank zappa 479 we're going to keep the frank zappa theme going with mr steve Vai. Steve uh, just released Inviolate, uh, first album in six years, an amazing instrumental collection of his usual guitar brilliance and wizardry, so we're going to talk to him in depth about that. Also, kind of a, a somewhat related guest as well, uh, if you recall, Steve in, uh, I think it was 2010, played on a couple tracks on Meatloaf, the late Meatloaf, God Rest His Soul, uh, he played on Hang Cool Teddy Bear. I did a couple guest spots on that. We're going to be joined by longtime bassist for Meatloaf, Mr. Chasm Sultan, who is also uh, a longtime member of the band Utopia. Chasm uh, will be in town to do a version of his Chasm Sultan's uh, Utopia. It's officially called, but it's a night of tribute music to the band of which he was such a major part of, Todd Rundgren's band. So we've got kind of a meatloaf theme stemming from a Frank Zappa theme coming in on this show. So we're going to play a little bit of, of some Steve Vai off of Inviolet, and then we're going to talk to the, the master himself. <laughs> Pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have the amazing Steve Vai on the line. How you doing today, Steve? I'm doing good. How you doing, brother? I am doing amazing. Um, you've got a new record dropped on Friday in Violate, um, which is the first album in kind of a number of years when I go back. And you, you've got a lot of work and in, in, in things, but it was kind of the first proper studio album in about five or six years. Um, when you sat down to do this collection of songs, um, you know, was there was there a particular inspiration that kind of brought these all together, or are these things you've kind of dabbled at over the years and finally just got to putting in a recording, or what is the process of kind of the collection of songs themselves? Well, you know, I I think the the process for me is not very different than it is for a lot of artists, where you kind of follow your instincts and choose what what I like to do is I. I basically follow what seems to be 
the thing that has the, the most pull at any given time. So, for instance, the lockdown has, you know, really threw a wrench in the works of the music community, that's for sure. I might even assume that, uh, you know, musicians got hit the worst, in a sense, because mm-hmm. a lot of musicians live hand-to-mouth and there was mm-hmm. just no gigs. But we're, we're a very resilient group, you know, and we figure it out. And musicians started to reach out and, and uh, using social media to reach their fans and stuff. And it actually um, it worked. You know, I, I know that for me, one of the different things that I got into in making this record was sharing files, sure. you know, sending files and not being there when they were recording them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, after I had recorded my last record, and release that modern primitive it was coupled with a anniversary release of um uh, passion and warfare right and i decided to go out and do a full passion and warfare sort of 25th anniversary tour and after that and that took like a year and a half because it was a, a huge world tour and then after that i um i got busy working on the third installment of a trilogy of records that I was working on called Real Illusions. And this is a pretty robust project, you know, it was going to require tons of vocals and sure. various people coming in. And uh, and actually before that I spent about a year uh, tweaking musical scores for recording. Um, I've got, uh, coming up in May, I'll be in Holland for a month recording about four hours of my orchestra music. Okay. <laughs> that took a while to sure. just, you know, get in shape and prepare. And then um, I was working on the real illusions. And then you wake up one day and you're in lockdown. Yeah. You know, everything stops. So we all really had to kind of scramble to, uh, you know, get our footing. And one of the things that a lot of artists started doing were, was to upload content to uh, various social platforms for their mm-hmm. fans. And I kicked off with two... A series of live streams one was called under it all and the other is called alien guitar secrets so that took some time and then i decided to um okay so you know the the lockdown you try to make lemonade out of lemons you sure know? You, you look around and you think okay how can this serve me I, it's a great uh idea you know whenever you're in a situation where you're confronted with a, a what looks like a problem you kind of, you you take a different perspective of it and you think well how how can this serve me i know there's a i know it's serving me somehow maybe not the way i think it should but how you know and then you start seeing the how and you know for me one of the things was uh there were certain guitar techniques and stuff i wanted to work on that i knew it was going to take a lot of time and the lockdown actually offered that time. And uh, one of the first things I recorded was a song called Candle Power, which actually made it to Inviolate. And it was a real challenge. It, it, it was some real quirky finger acrobatics in it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> it was well-received. And then I decided to do something I'd never done before, which was just put a camera up and video myself singing and playing acoustic guitar in a song called The Moon and I. And I put that up, and that was pretty well received by the fans. And I thought, you know, I always wanted to make a solo acoustic uh, vocal record. Mm-hmm. So I thought, now's the time, you know? And I actually started working on it and working on it, and it was really enjoyable. And the music was very different than anything 
I've done. And then I kind of hit a little brick wall in that my shoulder gave out. <laughs> yeah. I, it was a, it was in the process for years and years, you know, and then, you know, and I, uh, I'm a pretty, I'm a very healthy guy, I believe. And, you know, um, kind of holistic, but this situation required, you know, real medical attention. So sure. I got it fixed and it was great. And at the same time, I kind of developed a trigger finger. Yeah, you get older there, John. Yeah, you know, we unfortunately, we all do. <laughs> yeah. But it's not, no worries, I got it all fixed. And then I decided, um, you know, well, actually what happened when I got back from the hospital, I couldn't use my right arm. I had it in a sling. And I had my left hand, though. So I, I actually recorded a song with just my left hand yeah. called Knapsack. And that was just, you know... Um, out of necessity, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was well received too. So I, I decided to use that for inviolate also. And then, um, yeah, I got to the point where when I was able to play again, I could have went back and finished the acoustic record, but I really wanted to get on tour and I wasn't going to tour on a vocal acoustic record. So I saw the light at the end of the tunnel, mm -hmm. you know, and it said inviolate. <laughs> and, I, I just didn't, like I was saying before, you, you look out, you put your radar out and you say, okay, where's the pull, right. you know, and the pull was to complete a record and get on tour. And that's how Inviolate came about. Now, the, the songs, I, I noticed, you know, kind of following your career, you've got guitar chops that the rest of the world would love to have but this album to me seems a bit more melodic was that something that it may be a maturity of musicianship or just something intentional where it wasn't necessarily a shredder album well you know i mean there's blazes of speed that will the mortal people like myself will never get to obviously but um <laughs> it, was it something that you really think about when you're putting songs together well i think there's we as a musician or anybody when they find something they really like mm -hmm. to do in life which is vital to do mm -hmm. uh and you just throw yourself into it without any excuses for your whole life you'll develop you know you'll uh, go deeper into it and as you go through life and have various life experiences your perspective changes which changes your creative outlook everybody mm -hmm. understands sure. this um but what i noticed and i don't know if it's age or just um a lot of the spiritual practice that i do but uh yeah you you kind of like regroup a little bit you know i i've made many records and i've, I've many concerts uh, many notes yeah. you know and many nice melodies and yeah. I you know I just got, I guess with inviolate I got to the point where I was just preferring more melody more mm -hmm. melodicism but I still like the fireworks sure you know? yeah <laughs> so, yeah it's, and I really like to sorry again I was going to say I mean you you obviously have I I will never forget the first time I heard the solo to hot dog and a shake and you just went into some other stratosphere of speed there so you know it's there you you certainly have it and you sprinkle it in but it's not the theme of the record and, and that's um and and not that other records were but it this one seemed like to me you you pulled in even more melodies and, and you know things that you almost walk away hearing in your head um that, that stay with you beyond just listening to the record and i think that's 
you know, uh, what makes it so captivating to listen to. You know, it's a very Thank you. enjoyable. Yeah, I always strive for melody, you know, through my whole career. I always wanted it all, you know. Sure. I wanted to be able to have great melody, great arrangements. I, I, I love the, I always loved the idea of being a performer. I could never really take a theatrical route completely mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, uh, playing the guitar, you have to focus a bit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a little bit. So, but I do like being a ham a bit, and I, I love um, I love doing things that are really entertaining for uh, obviously the guitar community. Sure. Uh, and and you know, uh, enchanting type melodies. But uh, on Inviolate, there there is some real technique things that I did where I I may maybe not playing faster but mm. i raised my bar significantly yeah you know like the song candle power and and uh little pretty you know there's just there's things i know for me and i, I don't know how anybody else hears it but you you have, it's good to keep stock of your own evolution as an artist you know and uh teeth of the hydra that that was it i mean that that's the pinnacle of my quirkiness you know I mean, yeah that, that guitar what is that, that breathing sound? Is that the kind of, uh, and I, I'm assuming it's meant to sound like breathing, because that's what my ears are telling me when I'm listening to it. Is that the guitar? Uh, no, that's a dragon. <laughs> you <laughs> mic'd him up. Yeah, no, I just, the, the Hydra is a mythical dragon-like creature, you know, and when I was writing the song, I, I knew I had to get some Hydra-esque sounds in there, so I, they're samples. Yeah, it, it, it makes for a really, really cool thing. I mean, the thing that, that I, I enjoy, when you listen to this record, I think it's unequivocally Steve Vai, but it doesn't sound like anything you've done before, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, I, you know, there are certain players, you, you listen to Hendrix, you, you listen to Steve Ray Vaughan, you can sense that that's who you're listening to, even without being told. And this, I think, certainly right. falls into that for you. But then I listen to it and I think, this doesn't sound like you remade Passion of Warfare or Aliens Love Secrets. This is totally different. Um, you know, mm -hmm. And that's, a, I think, a real testament to where you took the music. Yeah, you know, that's something that just happens unconsciously. Mm -hmm. You know, because when I... Uh, the thing that moves me towards uh, unfolding a song is the way the idea hits me you know like if it's a mental idea if I, if I visualize something and i'm going oh yeah yeah you know that that that's it i gotta do that you know yeah. or if i'm uh writing a melody or listening you know i always want to touch this spot within my every artist does this by the way mm -hmm. you want to touch that spot within yourself that stimulates you in a unique way where it, it does it is your voice mm -hmm. and and you know this because of the way it's touching you because if it was if it was just playing somebody else's lines or something you get, you know you can get touched by that uh based on the excitement of actually getting it wow i can play a stevie ray Vaughan line wow this or sure. hendrix or whatever and mm -hmm. you get excited about that but there, for me this it was always something different when it was that connection between the notes that come off of your fingers and the little voice in your head that's, you know, saying, pick me, pick me, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> pick these notes, so to speak, and it's singing a melody to you. So that transcends all 
genre, all uh, category, all um, insecurities, all uh, expectations. You, you, you forget all expectations. When you're in the moment of finding that melody, it's a total reflection of your unique creative potential. Mm-hmm. And like, like we've discovered, that changes throughout your life. Sure. Well, so I think when it comes to something like Inviolate, it, it, I take the same approach that I always took, which is when a good idea comes, I just follow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? When you're tracking this, you, you obviously use uh, vibrato quite a bit. Um, do you do, or, or most of the, the leads we're listening to, are they single track guitars or are you doing multiple tracks? And if they're multiple, is it challenging when you're using the Floyd or, or whether you use your fingers or to kind of keep the pitch consistent so you don't end up with a mess, if that makes sense? Well, yeah, that's a lifelong practice for a guitar player, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the guitar is a pickled instrument in that the way that you hit that string is going to determine what note comes out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people may think they're fretting the fifth fret on the the E string and and sounding an A, but you hit that note, you you give it too much pressure, or you bend it a little bit, and it's Mm -hmm. not an A anymore. Or if you pull on it, it's a little flat. So intonation is something that I, I spent a lot of time and focus on through my career because... I'm a very visceral player, you know what I mean, sure. and and I get I can get very aggressive at times, and, and your intonation can go to hell, you know. And if you have bad intonation, it's you, you, that that's the sign of amateur, mm-hmm. you know. Professional uh, professional gravitates to pleasing sounding things, right. You know, and and that you that's all, always requires bulletproof intonation. Is, so is, when I use the whammy bar, when I use my fingers to vibrate a note, I even have a particular type of vibrato that I, I it's like, kind of like kind of like a circular vibrato. And this way, I, that I, I'm pushing on the note so it goes a little flat, and then you pull on sharp. it, and it goes a little sharp. So that's different than regular rock and roll vibrato, which I I do also. Mm-hmm. But um, the whammy bar—that's a whole different beast. Yeah, I, I listened to that. It, you know, it was much bending. You know, of, of the different kinds you go. I, I listened to this thing. It would be very easy to kind of derail. You know, for 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 somebody, you know, to just sound totally off key, almost. But you keep it under such control. Um, you know, it's, it's oh, something. Yeah, there's, mo- a, there's one riff in. Uh, candle power where uh, I do this joint shifting technique it's the first one and that was the hardest thing I ever played in my life and <laughs> getting the intonation right on that it's uh, it's 85% there that's 30-40% further than the rest of us so <laughs> I, I won't tell if you don't do you do you listen to like when, when you when you record something like that do you go back and listen to it a lot or are you a person that can you know, I left it all on the, on the tape, leave it alone, or, or do you tend to go back and nitpick your own performances or in re-record? I realize technology I, I don't, will I don't let nitpick. you. Yeah, I don't usually nitpick. But, but usually when I'm done, I know it, and it's good, and it's done. Mm-hmm. At least to my, you know, 
expectations and that's what really matters unless you know you're working with people and you're working both working on a piece and then you can mutually build it until you both decide it's or or a group whatever it is Mm -hmm. but me it's my i'm in my own little you know harmony hut (laughs) yeah and uh i i just uh when i feel it's done um there are tracks that i i love to listen to okay i am guilty I love listening to my own music. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No shame in some that. Some of it, some of it, you know, some of it has more of a pull, you know. And so, like for instance, on in Violet, when I when I finished Little Pretty, when you're going through the process of making a song, recording it, and I, I record my songs, I engineer them, I produce them. I perform on a lot of them, and when um, I mean a lot of other instruments besides guitar sometimes, but. Uh, you know, there there gets to a point where you um, you know it's done, and you want to move on, but you just enjoy listening to it. Mm-hmm. So, like with Little Pretty, I was stunned when I was finished with it. You know, and I'm I, I don't I don't feel guilty saying that. I was stunned. I, I was listening to this, and I'm like, where did I come up with those chords and that melody? You know, How, that doesn't sound like anything, but it sounds really interesting and good to me and that that i you got to entertain yourself and like sure with teeth of the hydra i i just marvel i i made some little videos just you know working it out in the studio and i'm just watching it going where did you how did you do that you know <laughs> so you had the same reaction that i had when i listened to it except i was saying how the hell did he do that you know i was a little more blunt but uh yeah that's good and, and I mean, you just realize that what the answer to the question is you just do it, you know. Mm. You 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 just start slow, and you enjoy the process. Like when I was doing knapsack, you know, mm-hmm. that that was that's one that people look at and go, "How did you do that?" You know, because it's all one hand and it's all this crazy stuff. It's not that much of a secret because if you're a legato type of a hammering guitar player like myself, playing guitar with one hand is not a big mystery, you know. Mm-hmm. But the the melody and just the whole presentation of it, you know, I, I might look at it and go, how did you do? Where did you find the time? Where did you? When did you? Yeah. And then you think about it and you go, well, you sat down, you looked at it, and you just started. And that's when you the moment you start doing something that seems impossible, it doesn't seem so impossible anymore. Yeah. But you have to know that you can accomplish something if you put the screws to it. So all, any idea that I approach, it's not a out of touch fantasy. You know, it's a aha moment mm-hmm. that I know it's accompanied with the understanding that I can, I know I can do that as long as I put the time in, yeah. you know, it's... and then, then you're off and, and the process is fun. Yeah. I think that that's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of people don't put the time in that, you obviously put in and then expect the results that you get. And that's, that's certainly what separates. Yeah. The only way you're going to put the time in is if you're enjoying the process while you're doing it Yeah. and you, you hold, you can hold the goal in your mind as the inspiration to continue. Yeah. Well, Steve, yeah. I, I want to thank you so much again in Violet's uh, now it'll be out on vinyl for those who enjoy that. Uh, and then you'll be out on the road starting late September, right? And, and through Pittsburgh, well, in Greensburg. Well, I'll be in, uh, we're going to be in Europe in the summer. Okay. But I'll, I'll be in the, the, the U.S. tour in September, yeah. Okay. And you're coming into Greensburg on the 7th. And for those in the southern 
part of the Pennsylvania. You'll be doing a show in Morgantown on the 11th. So if you don't catch you in one, they can certainly catch you in the other, both easily drivable from the Pittsburgh region. Well, I want to thank you so much. I, I wish you well, all the best. And, and we really looking forward to seeing the live show and see what you've cooked up for us this time. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to getting out there and playing live. I'm just, I'm just boiling over for it. Awesome. <laughs> so thank you. All right, a big thank you to Steve Vai. Uh, he will be in uh, Greensburg, Pennsylvania, doing a show on the 7th at the Palace. That show was originally scheduled for earlier in the year. Uh, Steve had to have some surgery. Uh, as you might have seen on some of the news websites, hurt his shoulder making pizza, of all things. Uh, so he will have to postpone the tour. So he says, he mentioned in the interview, itching to get back on the road. He's going to hit Europe first and then come back around to the United States. So... Look forward to that in the fall. As I mentioned at the top of the show, joining us next uh, is Mr. Chasm Sultan, who has been the bass player for so, so, so many albums. Um, not to understate, but if you, if you have a moment and can go to either his website or Wikipedia and look up, he was a member of the Blackhearts with Joan Jett. He was uh, Todd Rundgren's band Utopia played on Bad Out of Hell 1, 2, and 3, and several other Meatloaf albums, played on an album with Celine Dion, played with an album with the Indigo Girls. Um, it, it would be staggering to try to calculate the number of albums that have been sold worldwide that Chasm has played on. Uh, and I think when you listen to the interview, you're going to see why. Just an, an absolutely great guy. So, again, the show is March 7th at Jurgles in Warndale. It is Chasm Sultan's Utopia, which is a band he put together performing songs. Obviously, Chasm was the bass player for all but the first studio album and the first live album of Utopia. Uh, he did some vocals with Utopia, so he's doing, of course, those songs out on the road. So let me give you a chance to listen to what the show is all about, Mr. Chasm Sultan. Welcome to the show, Chasm Sultan. How are you doing today, Chasm? I'm well, John. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure, absolutely. You're going to be coming in uh, to do a show at Jurgles in Warndale, Pennsylvania, on March 7th, uh, Chasm Sultan's Utopia show, which um, yeah. I think, by the name of it, I think a lot of people can derive this is going to be a night of primarily <laughs> yeah. utopia music. Is is it exclusively utopia music, or do you work in some of? I know you had a, a you know you've had several solo albums. You had an album in 2021, if yeah. my memory serves correct. Will you be mixing in correct. any of that, or, or what can we expect from the set list? You know, when I put these shows together, I I I, I always kind of threaten myself with the. Uh, well, maybe I should make it a little more diverse. Maybe I mm -hmm. should do some solo material. But then again, if I do that, then I really can't call. I really can't use uh, the name Utopia and 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 be 
you know, feel good about it. Sure. So um, I keep these Catherine Sultan's Utopia shows to strictly Utopia music. Um, and barring one or two little spots during the show, uh, it's all music that I uh, I was involved with in the band, I, either writing uh, or on the record or uh, touring it. Um, so I like to keep it kind of pure uh, Utopia shows. And for, for, for those maybe not familiar with the exact time, you were in the band for well, pretty much the bulk of the recorded material, correct? Outside of, maybe was it this the first album you weren't involved with, or where, where did you join? First in? two. First two, uh, okay. the fir- the first first two records I, I was not on. I think I think the first one was the was a studio record, and the second one was the uh, another live. Right. So it was a live a live record. Um, uh, and then I joined the band. I think the band actually formed in either 1972 or 1973. Um, and I joined the band in 1976. Okay. So, you- so they had they uh, yeah they had already gotten you know a bunch of touring and some recording under their belts before I, I, I came in. It was a big band, too. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a, um, a started off as, I think, a seven-piece band, two wow. keyboard players, Todd, um, background singers. So, yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was a large band. Actually, I, three keyboard players. I, I can't fathom what the cost of touring with that would be in, in this era, but different time, different... Uh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, you, yeah, you have to look at it in 1972 dollars, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, but still, it's all relative, isn't it? Uh, it it's, it's certainly relative. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It's a, it, it, touring is a very expensive proposition on, uh, under the best of circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, you look at back, you know, at the time of the budgets that, you know, going to, to, you know, those albums, I'm sure, as many albums as you've been, I don't need to tell you about budgets for albums, especially in the, you know, the 80s and early 90s and stuff, but uh, the cost of touring, you know, is certainly so different. How did you kind of intersect with Todd Rundgren? Obviously, that kind of shaped a lot of the the early part of your musical career. What was the, the, you know, the, the impetus to that meeting? So it was just a series of happy, you know, happy accidents. Uh, I am very close friends with uh, a gentleman by the name of Earl Slick. He's a guitar mm-hmm. player. Yeah. He plays with David Bowie, John Lennon, uh, the really great, great guitar player. And we, we've known each other since we were teenagers. Um, and, uh, and Slick uh, was one of the first people in my area where I grew up that became successful. Uh, and once you do that, you kind of open a lot of doors for yourself, and and you you you're thrust into a um, a community that you wouldn't normally be in had you not been successful. Um, so uh, so I met um, I was working with a girl by the name of Cherry Vanilla at the time. This is a this is a pretty convoluted story. I was working with Cherry Vanilla playing keyboards. Cherry was uh, a, a, was a rock poetess in the New York punk uh, rock scene in the early 70s. And uh, I was playing piano with her. Um, one of her, uh, one of her um, jobs was she was a publicist at Main Man Records, which was David Bowie's yeah. uh, record label. And um, so through Cherry, I met uh, a bunch of people 
that were uh, heavily connected in the New York music scene, uh, one of them being Michael Kamen. Uh, and Michael was a, a brilliant arranger, composer, uh, pianist um, that uh, played with David on the Diamond Dogs tour, and uh, along with Slick. Um, and he kind of took a liking to me, and so I wasn't really a, a quote-unquote piano player. Uh, I was kind of just like <laughs> just wading my way through, trying to you know get to the next level yeah. in the music industry in New York City. So Michael uh, gave me some some uh, hints and uh, some lessons uh, um, over the course of a year or so. And we became close. Um, so Michael is uh, is a friend of Roger Powell's, okay. who was the keyboard player in Utopia at the time. John Siegler, who was the bass player in Utopia, left the band uh, to pursue a, a career in uh, commercials and film scoring. Um, so they had a, a spot open. Uh, Michael told Slick... He says uh, that um, there's a, uh, Todd Rung was looking for a bass player. If you know anyone, let me know so I could recommend him to uh, Roger Powell. I went over to Slick's house to drive him to the airport one day. Uh, he was going to JFK to go to, uh, I think he was going to the UK for some um, solo shows or shows with his band. Anyway, I walk into his house, which was about three blocks from my parents' house where I lived at the time. And the first thing he says to me after hello is, you feel like playing bass for Todd Rundgren? I said, yeah, sure. sure. I'll, you know, I'll go. I'll check it out. I'll try. He said, well, when we get to JFK, call Michael Kamen and let him know that you're interested. I, I, we got to the airport. I called Michael. Michael said, I didn't know that you were a bass player. And I said, well, actually, that's my main instrument. Um, you know, I, I, I play key, uh, piano with Cherry, um, but I'm really a bass player. He said, okay, well, I'll recommend you hands down. The next day, I got a call from Roger and inviting me to Woodstock to audition for the band, and that was the start of my professional career. Now, was, I mean, aside from piano and bass, did you play other instruments at the time, or, or was, you know, was that kind of your goal, is to make it as a bassist? I mean, because that's, you know, certainly... No, I, I just didn't wanted care to make what it, instrument. Yeah. I, I, I didn't care... I just wanted to. I I just wanted to be a Beatle. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was. Uh, that's really how I started my my journey was was at the Ed Sullivan Show in February of '64, and um, uh, you know I, I I started as a guitar player, and the only reason that I became a bass player was because the band that I wanted to be in at 13 years old ha already had two guitar players. And they said, well, we don't need another guitar player, but we do need a bass player. So go. I said, okay, well, I'll play bass. That's... I sold the guitar that my dad had gotten me a couple of Christmases earlier and bought a bass guitar, and that, that, that's how that started. So I'm looking at just a part of your professional recording resume and, and have to think that there's something more to you as a musician than just the ability to play the bass, because there many many great bass players but you have worked with I, I sometimes will say you've worked with everyone but you've worked with everyone and then some is there something i mean i know you you've served as for example musical director uh with some with some acts is, is there something that you find in your 
repertoire that kind of opens these opportunities or is it a personality thing plus you know your your ability on the instrument or what what makes you so in demand uh well thanks uh i appreciate the thoughts um i i i like to think that you know it's you have to have a a certain amount of talent Mm -hmm. um certainly to to make it in uh, in any industry, uh, it doesn't matter if you're you know a, a plumber or a fireman or mm-hmm. uh, or a, a hedge fund manager. You have to be talented at what you do sure. in order to be good at it. Um, but you also have to be a, a, a nice person, <laughs> and yeah. I think that part of my part, part of, of, of the attraction to me is that I'm I'm pretty good at what I do, and I'm really uh, I'm a team player, and I. And I'm I'm a nice guy to be around, so so yeah. those things in, in in conjunction just you know make make me um, sometimes uh, you know it's like oh let's let's call Casim he's great to work with you know it's yeah. like sometimes it's not it's not so much um, how well you play but it's how well you play with others. Yeah, I mean you you know you know this as well as anybody i mean your job requires you to essentially live with people for months at a time so if you're a slob a jerk uh you know uh, irresponsible (laughs) you know you could be the greatest bass player in the world and and you see a lot of incredible virtuoso musicians who end up making solo albums and then working another job um but there's something to be said for certain guys and i can think of a handful where you look at and, and you really don't see any downtime. I mean, you've worked with, obviously, Todd Runger, and you were, you were a Blackheart with Joan Jett um, for, for a period yeah. of time, which yeah. actually threw yeah. me when I was looking back through it. Like, I totally, you know, did, that was kind of the era where I had gotten away from the music videos. And I, and I, re, I remember talking to Ricky Byrne uh-huh. about a year or so ago about his solo yeah. album and uh-huh. uh, didn't connect the uh-huh. dots. And, you know, you've worked with... Uh, you know some of the most amazing talents in there so it was just a kind of a curious thing you know for someone who might be listening saying you know i'd really like to become a professional musician as opposed to you know kind of a a pop star you know make an album and and kind of fade away yeah you found a way to find longevity yeah um i'd be remiss yeah i'm sorry following meatloaf's passing to to not maybe ask you what obviously the first album you were still very much part of utopia and, and am i correct you did not do the initial like bat out of hell tour that was a different basist on that tour i correct? did not do the tour we we that was that that was one of uh that that bat out of hell one record was uh that was you know one of the first albums that i recorded um we started recording that record and probably in in the fall in the late fall of 1976 did you and have- uh I had. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Did you have a sense when you were when you were you know kind of working on those songs, the impact you know that are the you know maybe the uniqueness of some of that you know obviously live the band was very different I think than what people saw in other acts but you know that's a very interesting that's 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 really interesting your choice of words is really interesting you, it, nobody's ever said to me you know. That, the, that that material was kind of unique. Everybody mm. puts a little bit of a different spin and, or a label on it. Mm. And I think that, that you just really hit the nail on the head when you used the word unique. Because it was, you yeah. know, it wasn't 
it wasn't anything that you had been used to hearing prior to that. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of of Bruce Springsteen and a little yeah. um, uh, a, a, a little bit of, of a, a Phil Spector production a, uh, um, yeah. aspect to it, and then it was it was a little on the heavy side and it was a little on the rock side. So it was this conglomeration of of all kinds of different genres, you know, mashed together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and much to his credit, Todd, you know, Todd saw the potential in that record early on um, and decided to take on the production uh, and ultimately the funding of the record and, and the recording of it. He paid for the whole thing. Um, and, and so so you, to, to answer your question, uh, I had you know, I had no idea. I just, mm. you know, they just said, well, you know, you're the bass player, play the bass. Yeah. And I was given free reign to do whatever I thought the song needed and um i got away with with bloody murder on that record because i'm playing all over the place normally when you you know when you do a record somebody might say to you you know uh excuse me bass player you're 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 playing a little bit too much you just yeah. want to you just want to stick yeah. to the root notes and maybe throw in a fifth every once in a while exactly. but no i was uh i was all over the place and no one no one said stop so uh, I'm very, very proud of that, uh, of, the, of my work on that first record. Yeah. And uh, it's still, you know, it, it is it is one of the all-time best-selling records um, still on the catalog chart. Yeah. Uh, you know, whoever, who knows how many millions of records it sold. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, that's, um, it's, it's certainly a feather in any musician's cap to, to be on one of the biggest-selling records of all time. So can you walk us through, I mean, obviously you worked with Joan Jett for a period of time, but you, you kind of stayed in conjunction with Meatloaf's band, and then for, for quite a long time you served as the musical director. How did you go from being, you know, kind of a, a studio musician working with him to then, you know, making that kind of transition? Again, you know, it's just it, it, every so often, you, you know, the stars align and you are in, um you're in a position where somebody remembers uh, working with you. Or I was actually in Australia with Hall and Oates at the time. Um, I hadn't seen Meatloaf in probably, God, I want to say maybe 12, 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, maybe we had crossed paths once or twice over that time period. Uh, and you know, I I, I loved Meat. I, I thought he was a really, really sweet guy. Um, so I, we, I was staying in, in a hotel in Sydney, and I went down for breakfast, and there's Meatloaf and, and his first wife, Leslie, um, having breakfast. And I was like, oh, my goodness, Meatloaf, how are you? Um, this must have been 1991, I think, or 92. Uh, no, it's probably 91. And anyway, we sat down, we visited, we had a nice chat, um, and uh, and then I didn't hear from him again until uh, it came time to do the backgrounds on Bad Out of Hell 2. So the ba- background vocals on Bad Out of Hell 2 were myself, Todd Rundgren, and Rory Dodd. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then we finished, we finished the, the record, and uh, again, I didn't, I didn't hear anything. And I think because I had all of a sudden be, uh, uh, kind of been in Meat's mind, Meatloaf's mind, and in his orbit, so to speak, 
um, when it came time to put his band together, he needed a utility guy, um, which means, you know, kind of you're playing a few different instruments, uh, filling out and singing backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, 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 and that's something that I do. Right. Um, he called me and he said, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going out, out on the road. I'm putting, uh, that out of hell two is being released and I'm putting uh, a show together. Would you have any interest in being uh, one of the and uh, being a utility guy in the band and coming and playing live with me? And I was like, I wasn't doing anything at the time. There was no <laughs> Todd work. There was uh, um, Hall and Oates had had finished um, touring for a while. So I said, of course. And that that started a 17 year relationship with him on uh, on a live basis. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, and it's interesting you mentioned Rory uh, uh, Dodd. I, I was going through the liner notes of that, and I was like, where do I know the name from? And then I was like, that's the guy from uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart. And, and you know, it's just, uh, yeah. so really that all those background vocals were done by guys who were on the first record as well, which is really cool to kind of get all those people back yeah. for, for the second album. Um, yeah. And you, you've worked with, like, Celine Dion, for example. I mean... Have you ever, mm-hmm. at some point, looked at how many albums you may have, in a rough estimate, sold or played on that have sold? You know, you throw that album, the Falling into You album, so, so, that have sold. Yeah, it's like sixteen <laughs> yeah. million just in the U.S. I mean, that's, you know, the, yeah, the the numbers are almost staggering. So, so that that's an, that's another interesting question. I I, I think. I, Jeez, I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe who knows? I, I, I have no idea. All I know is <laughs> that I don't get paid by the record. Yeah, I was so, just gonna. <laughs> you know? I remember. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make a difference. I could play on a ha- I could play on a half a billion records. It, 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 my my bottom line is always always the same. I think back. I, I can't remember which yeah. actor in the original Star Wars cast had opted to get paid somehow based on the distribution of the movie. They kind of took a chance on it and mm-hmm. made it up making significantly more money yeah. than all the rest of the cast. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, yeah. New approach to doing session work. Pay, pay me a you know a half a penny an album. Of course, that's pretty much what Spotify. Yeah, well, you, you, unfortunately, <laughs> that those days are over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You you get a quarter of the penny that the artist themselves actually gets by the you know it take you forever to yeah. make a to pay the electric bill with that kind of royalties. But, uh, exactly. Yeah. So, Chasm, you you released a solo album. I mentioned in, in was it twenty twenty one the Chasm album? Yes, uh, oh. I believe it was released September mid September of twenty twenty one. Okay, sorry, the last two or three years have all sort of blurred together when it comes to some of this stuff because no the, the normal touring yeah. cycle for anyone is so messed up. You know, usually you you have an album, you see a guy, okay, and then two years later you see them again and. and anymore it's like okay there was an yeah. album and it, it seems like yesterday but oh that was 2018 you know that, that kind of thing so um yeah are you still doing kind of recording or, or what's kind of next on the horizon for you uh, you know aside from the touring or are you just kind of enjoying the fact you're able to get out so the next thing up for me is my my solo shows the the Captain Sultan's Utopia shows they're in March it's just a handful of shows mm-hmm. at the beginning of March we're in New York uh New York City on March 1st, um, and then uh, out in uh, then down in uh, Philly in the Philly area. Um, then we go uh, up over to Long Island and uh, 
Kent, Ohio, uh, Chicago, Cincinnati, been down by you uh, prior to that. Um, so that 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 takes up a, a, a significant amount of uh, time and attention sure. uh, for me to put a show together like that um, with a band. Uh, so I'm really, really looking forward to uh, going out and doing those shows. It, it's a, the reason that I started doing it um, uh, was because I, I just I, I I got I don't want to say I got tired of it, but you know the fans would ask me constantly, "Are you guys ever going to get back together again? Sure. Is Utopia ever going to do another record? Are you ever going to do another tour?" And my answer was always the same: I don't think so. You know, never say never. Right. But I didn't. I, I I didn't see the potential for something like that happening as being so great. So I took it upon myself to uh, to, and I went to Todd and I said, "This is what I'd like to do." And he said, "Yeah, sure, that's fine. If you want it, that, that's what you want to do, and go do, go do it." And uh, it wound up being really successful. We did the first show in 2017. We only did three shows, but they sold out like within a week. And uh, and so there was there was a, a, a market there for that music yeah. that these fans hadn't you know they hadn't heard all that stuff in one show in a very 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 long time. So I continue to do it every single year, and uh, and I love it, and it's and it's it's just my way of thanking the fans for being so loyal over the years, and uh, you know, and, and coming to see me and buying the records and. Um, you know, I do my own show, uh, solo shows as well that, that are not Utopia shows. Right. Um, for instance, after after this Utopia tour, I, I take a, a, a little breather, and then over the summer, I'm going to go back out again with my own uh, on, with my material. Uh, so I'll I'll be out behind my latest record, 2021. And then the, my previous solo records before that. Sure. And that, so there's always something to do. Yeah, and it's it's great to hear you know that that you know you're in a relationship with Todd where you know you can kind of go and have that conversation and it's not a your lawyer and his lawyer fighting over whether your name has to go after the word utopia or before you know, you know we've seen so many bands yeah. that end up having well, to do that. Well, you know, that. I mean, in, in, it, yeah. In all fairness, you know, if I was if if I was you know, selling out theaters and arenas, it might be a different story. Sure. But I do, you know, I, I'm, I, I try to remain right sized yeah. in terms of, you know, it's like I don't really bite off a more than I can chew. Sure. And uh, you know, I, I, I like the intimacy of the smaller gigs anyway. Yeah. So I, I certainly have over the years done enough arena tours, um, and they're great. You know, it's I, 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 nothing more exciting than walking on stage. Uh, in front of ten thousand, fifteen, twenty thousand people, but there's something that, there. There is something that is just so intimate about you know three hundred seat club or or, yeah. or seven hundred seat theater that um, just you know you you st it's still to this day after a forty five year career I get butterflies when I walk out on stage. It's just just the greatest feeling in the whole world. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Kazim, I want to thank you so much again. You'll be in town to do a show at Jurgles. Look forward very much to seeing you yeah, when you get in. Yeah, please come down. Please, everybody, come out and see the show. It's going to be a really, really good show. And I think somebody somewhere must be tall and a bear. 
last thing I see is my heart still beating. I'm breaking out of my body and flying away like a bat out of hell. And I'm dying at the bottom of a pit in a blazing sun. I'm torn and twisting at the foot of a burning light. And I think somebody somewhere must be told in a bed. Again, March 7th, Jurgles Warndale, uh, Chasm Sultan's Utopia. I uh, really appreciate uh, talking to him about his experiences with Meatloaf and the uh, with the timing of him passing. I uh, was glad to get a chance to talk to him, Chasm, his musical director for many, many years, many tours. Uh, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, it was kind of a nice tie-in with uh, Steve I, who has done some guest work on uh, Meatloaf's album in 2010. Hang Cool Teddy Bear. If you're a Steve Vai nut and miss that, go back and listen to that album. It's a great record. Uh, and also in Violet, which is available now, as I mentioned in the interview, it's available digitally and on CD. You can get it at Vi.com or any of the other places you buy. Also, there will be a vinyl release in March of that available. The show has been postponed to November uh, with Steve Vai at the Palace Theater. There's also a show... Just a couple days later in Morgantown, West Virginia. So if you're in the sound of my voice, that western Pennsylvania area, really two chances to get to Steve I. Now, some people complain when a show is in Greensburg that, you know, if they live out by the airport, for example, that it's a bit of a, a crawl to get out there. Well, consider Morgantown to get it straight down 79 and hit it. So really no reason not to catch Steve I. Uh, and such an amazing visual performer. Um, and for me personally, listening to Inviolet, uh, I, I spent a lot of time listening to it on headphones and, and just trying to visualize what the hell he's doing with his hands playing these songs. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see him play these live. So I want to thank you so much for listening. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. We are on all the major social media platforms at forward slash ironcityrocks, or you can drop us an email, ironcityrocks at gmail.com. As of the recording of this, there is still approximately a week, two weeks left to vote for the Pittsburgh Music Awards. We do annually. Uh, We took a year off for the pandemic. If you want to hear why, listen to the previous episode. We went into all the details on that. Uh, But it's your chance to vote for uh, musicians, live musicians, instrumentalists in the Pittsburgh region. Uh, We do not do any advertising. Uh, A lot of the other kind of readers polls that go on in the in the city of pittsburgh are heavily influenced um 
by advertising. Where you are on the ballot, for example, is dictated by if you advertise. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail on that, but I can say that our the awards that we do annually, no hand-selected bands whatsoever. Every band, every musician that is in these awards were nominated by popular vote. Uh, the top three in each category made it to the final round, and the final will be voted by popular vote. It's one vote per email, so please don't try to just keep hitting submit uh, repeatedly. The staff of Iron City Rocks does not vote, does not select anyone at all. can say with 100% honesty that some of these bands we had to look up to actually hear the songs and, and the instrumentals that were nominated in these categories. So please no uh, uh, collusion involved whatsoever. Um, this is entirely your opportunity to vote for the bands and the artists that you like. So check that out. If you go to ironcityrocks.com, you can get the information on where to vote. Uh, it's on all the social medias. Uh, most of the bands that have been nominated have been sharing the links to vote as well. So we encourage you to do that. We'll announce the winners uh, and keep those on our website as well. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Mr. Vi and Mr. Salton for coming on the show. And until next time, take care. <laughs>